Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. My name is Brad, and with me as always is my co-host Sarah. Good morning, Sarah. Hey, Brad. Um, it's nice to be here in actually the basement of the house. We've had quite an experience trying yeah. to figure out where we can set up. A- We've recorded three separate places. Yes. And this one sounds the best. We'll just see if uh, dust allergies affect any of us. But we have a special guest here this morning. Yes, we do. It is one of our co-workers. Her name is Grace. Yes. Hi, I'm Grace Abernethy. I'm the historic preservation here at Carnton, and I'm joining Sarah and Brad for today's podcast, and I mostly work on the structures here. I'll oftentimes on tour, when people ask about restoration, I'll talk about how you and Brennan, your husband, spent like eight or nine months handmaking shingles for the one building, just because that's the one project that I, I witnessed a bit of. Yeah, the spring house was basically my baby. It took nine months. Mm-hmm. Or the, the smokehouse. Smokehouse, sorry. It took nine months to make the shingles and put them up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That but it looks fantastic. Quite a, quite a project. Yeah, it, yeah, it is really impressive. Never want to make another wood shingle in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the wrong field then. Maybe you should be a, a I don't know, a tour guide, a tour guide, yeah, <laughs> or a baker, something like that. Baker, yeah. If you're a baker, you probably don't have to make a new wood shingle. Right. Probably, but you never know. So you've researched quite a bit on a particular topic that involves a historic building in downtown Franklin. Yes, Indian removal. So today I. I just thought that we would talk a little bit about Indian removal and um, its history as a government policy and then how Tennessee and Tennesseans were involved in that. So the obvious person who comes to mind when you hear the words Indian removal is... Andrew Jackson. Jackson. Right, We've yes. actually, he's answered several questions already. <laughs> yeah. well, he's a <laughs> good stock yeah. answer for a lot of things. But he yes, is. Jackson obviously was a Tennessean and was the president who carried out Indian removal. But as a governmental policy, it actually predates Andrew Jackson by a good 30 years almost. The earliest American presidents all had to deal with the problem of what do you do with Indian tribes who are constantly fighting against you and allying with your enemies. Mm -hmm. And so that was always an issue that people were dealing with. But it wasn't until Jefferson came into office in 1801 that the government actually came up with a policy for either assimilating Native people's into American culture or trying to encourage them to remove themselves to a different location. Because according to Jefferson, he didn't think that Native Americans were lesser human beings. Right. He just thought their culture was not as yes, exactly. up to date as white So culture. he thought that it would yeah. be a win-win for both sides of basically the two cultures mm-hmm. melded with obviously Native Americans adopting a lot of Anglo-European American traits. So the idea of removal became a possibility with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, which opened up the whole middle of America west of the Mississippi and all of a sudden gave the U.S. government a convenient place to move Native peoples. At the same time, you also have the first large migration of people from the east out to to the lands of Alabama, Mississippi, and a lot of these people were cotton farmers who were younger sons who didn't have a lot of land or prospects in the East and had heard that there was really good soil out in these areas. And so they were moving in, wanting to start their own farms and plantations. The only problem was that the lands that they wanted were already taken. They belonged to different Native American tribes. There were about 60,000 Native peoples who were living in the lands that would become the cotton belt. So they're starting 
started to be problems when all these settlers would move out and start squatting on Indian lands and the two sides would clash. And then the white settlers would complain to the government and say, hey, do something about mm-hmm. this. Would you say this is in the era of when the the concept of manifest destiny was kind of taking, like, if we can go and take control of something, then it is our duty to do that? Definitely. And people thought that America's destiny was to be a nation that stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Mm-hmm. When viewed in that light, Native Americans were really just a blockage. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely something that's at play as well. Jefferson had this idea of removal, but it was never supposed to be coerced, even though he had some dirty tactics mm-hmm. as well. He liked to try to trick Native tribes into falling into debt and then say, hey, here's a get-out-of-debt-free card. You can move <laughs> out west. But he really, the program that he really touted was the Civilization Program, which is, again, the idea that Native people should settle down, set up farms, adopt Christianity, learn to read and write. And a lot of Native peoples did this, particularly the five tribes that became known as the five civilized tribes. The Cherokee, the Creek, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Seminole, the five big southern tribes. And this really, they thought, was supposed to ensure their survival Mm -hmm. as like a nation in the location that they were at. So this is really as far as Jefferson got with his various approaches towards Native peoples. It wasn't until 1815 that the idea of removal really cropped up again, and that was under the presidency of Monroe. And James Monroe said, we need to move all these people out west. They're going to be annihilated if we don't. And Congress shot him down. So this five presidents and we're now in the 18... 18 teens? Yeah. Mm It was 1817, I believe. It's also interesting because Monroe was the diplomat who negotiated the Louisiana Purchase. So there's a lot of like interweaving of different Mm -hmm. politicians and people throughout this process as we'll continue to see. So even after Monroe had ceased to be president in 1825 he addressed congress again and said we need to remove these people and again congress wasn't really too interested but things had really changed by 1830 for a couple of reasons and this is the presidency of jackson which obviously is the time when the indian removal act was passed Mm -hmm. was passed in 1830 one other interesting side note to this is that John C. Calhoun is someone who you don't really hear the name, his name mentioned when it comes to Indian removal. But John C. Calhoun, who was a like massive uh, congressman in much of 19th century politics. Right. And he's Jackson's VP. Mm-hmm. He's John Quincy Adams VP. And he's also uh, Monroe's secretary of war. Yeah. Pro-slavery stand. Yes. From, like that's from kind South of what he's Carolina. known for. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of in the backdrop of this. And I really think I don't have any proof of this, but I really think that he's probably encouraging this and seeing it as a a long-term investment. So by the time that Jackson's in power, Calhoun is his VP. And Jackson had a very rich history with Native tribes. Obviously, he's the hero of the War of 1812. And during that war, he had a lot of interaction, both positive and negative, with American Indian tribes. During the teens and 20s, he worked on conducting treaties with a couple eastern tribes. And so Tennessee in the early 18-teens had several tribes living here, a lot of Chickasaw and Choctaw. But by the 1830s, they had all already moved west before the big treaties were signed. Um, so he'd been working on getting portions of tribes 
to move out west, but these were treaties that were, they weren't coerced. It was tribes wanting to move westward. He was a treaty negotiator with the Creek during the War of 1812. He was in charge of the first Seminole War, 1817, and then he conducted a treaty with the Choctaw in 1820. So initially, Jackson's policy was that he supported the idea of assimilation and the idea of removal. So he's kind of in the same vein as Jefferson initially, but by 1830, he has changed his mind and he sees removal as the only viable option. So for a long time, he was, you can you can be one of us or you can go over there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this, I think, is economically stimulated. In the 1820s, there was gold discovered on Cherokee lands in Georgia, and he was a speculator. And then around the same period, you have the big migration of Southerners out to the deep Southlands mm-hmm. of and Alabama. And cotton is just taking sand. over. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he sees it as being inevitable mm-hmm. and really a good thing for these tribes to get off their land and open it up for white settlement. So the combination of these two things really brought the government's problem of what to do with a Native American to a head in 1830. It was in this year that Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which forced Native tribes to either give up their lands in the East, trading them for lands in the West, or to become subjects of the states in which they lived. So basically, they would no longer be sovereign nations if they stayed where they were. In his speech to Congress at the end of 1830, he referred to the Indian Removal Act as not only liberal, but generous, and said that he was saving Native Americans from annihilation. It's a good way to spin it to get people on your side. Definitely. And I'm sure people have debated and are on both sides about whether this was a humanitarian gesture or just ruthlessly authoritative. Mm -hmm. It's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Jackson tended to be a strange mixture of both. Yeah. Well, and it also seems like he wasn't going to stop the people from settling into those areas anyway and taking over. Maybe he did truly believe that if we can if we can move them somewhere else, then it'll stop what is going to inevitably happen anyway. Mm-hmm. But it also conveniently worked out really well in his favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if he figured out that the Trail of Tears would be so horrible either when he right. first initiated it. We've already talked a little bit about Jackson. There's a number of men from Tennessee who were instrumental in Indian removal. Another one was John Bell. He was the chairman of the House Committee on Indian Affairs, and he's actually the author of the Indian Removal Act. So he wrote it, and Jackson signed it in April of 1830. And he's from just outside of Nashville. Later, he and Jackson had a falling out and were pretty bitter enemies. Another big Tennessean who was involved in Indian removal was um, Secretary of War John Eaton, who was actually from Franklin. He was a really close advisor to Jackson from about 1824 into the 1830s. The next big Tennessean is General John Coffey. Like Jackson, Coffey had a lot of history with Native tribes in 1813. He was serving as general of the Tennessee State Militia, and he led the attack that was authorized by Jackson on a Creek village called Tulasahatchee in Alabama, which ended up being a really big massacre of women, children, and warriors. And also, Davy Crockett was there. General Coffey also, in 1830, orchestrated the first full removal treaty 
with the Choctaw. So our other big Tennessean is Davy Crockett. He, like I just said, was at the Creek Massacre at Tullisahatchee and participated. 17 years later in 1830, he was a minority voice in Tennessee and in the Southeast in general because he spoke against Indian removal. He was vehemently opposed to it. The Indian Removal Act narrowly passed. It was 28 to 19 in the Senate, 102 to 97 in the House. Wow. wow. Um, but all of the Tennessee representatives voted in favor of it, except for Davy Crockett. Did he, he say why? He said that Republican ideals would be dead when we started to forcibly remove people from mm. the country. So he seemed to have a change of heart, you know, later on in his life. Yes, definitely. Right. And he actually told... The house that he would go into exile in Texas if they passed the removal act, which they did, and he did. Wow. Dying shortly after at the Alamo. Franklin, the city in Tennessee, also Mm -hmm. figures into the Indian removal story, and that's because the removal treaty between the federal government and the Chickasaw was signed here in Franklin. It was in August of 1830, and initially Chickasaw representatives came up and met with Coffee and Eaton, who we just talked Mm -hmm. about. And they met at the Presbyterian Church downtown. And so Coffee and Eaton read a speech that had been prepared by Jackson, who was not actually present. The Chickasaw told them that their new country out west would be equal, if not superior, to their current country of Mississippi. And he also compared the prosperity that white Americans enjoyed because of their ancestors' immigration to the futures that American Indians' descendants would have out west. So some pretty powerful analogies and metaphors. What year was this again? This was 1830. And why Franklin? Was this like a middle ground? I don't know. I looked that up and couldn't really find anything definitive on it. It's a middle, I mean, it's a convenient location, obviously, for Eaton, Coffee, and Jackson, because they're all middle Tennesseans. The Chickasaw had had lands in Tennessee, but by this point, they didn't anymore. They had a little bit of land near Memphis, but their lands in Middle Tennessee had been gone. So that was on August 20th. They left and said that they needed to think about it and would reconvene in a couple more days. And on August 23rd, they met at the Masonic Lodge in Franklin. They supposedly met in the first floor. Again, Jackson was not present. He gave another speech to Eaton and Coffee to read. And in this one, he referenced the War of 1812 and himself and the Chickasaw fighting side by side. So again, it's like, hey, we fought We're buds. together. Mm-hmm. We're buds. You can trust me. Again, they break, say we need to think about it and we'll come back three days later. They go back to the Masonic Lodge and or the Chickasaw secretary responds that Jackson's right. They really don't have enough land even now to support them, much less their future descendants as they continue to grow, they will sign the treaty. And so they signed the treaty. So that's Franklin's big role in Indian removal. But Tennessee in general figured in a little bit more with different removal routes of different tribes. So ultimately, most of all five of the tribes were removed. There were little sections of each that stayed behind. But all of them began to be removed in the 1830s with or without signing treaties. The federal government got basically fed up with them because there would be situations where some leaders from the tribe would come and sign a treaty. And the rest of the tribe would say, oh, they did it without our approval, so it's not valid. And so there was a lot of this kind of runaround. And the government finally said, all right, you're just 
we're gonna move you out. The first tribe to be removed was the Choctaw. They were mostly in Alabama and a little bit of Mississippi. And a quarter of the tribe did opt to stay in Mississippi. A fifth of the ones who removed died en route to Oklahoma mm-hmm. from exposure, exhaustion, and their removal was the first one. The government obviously had never moved a large group of people before, and they just did not adequately plan every leg mm-hmm. of the journey. They didn't have enough food. People who were supposed to show up with wagons to transport different groups of the tribe didn't show up or went to the wrong location. It was the middle of winter, and it was a winter that was somewhat like this one, very cold and rainy, and it was just a disaster. Yeah, I mean, a fifth of the people, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And the federal government at this point, they didn't do this for any of the other tribes, but they told the Choctaw that anyone who opted to walk the entire way instead of them having to provide wagons or mules or anything would be given financial incentives at the end. And so a lot of people died that way. They ended up putting most of the people on steamboats in Memphis and sending them up the river. And they were supposed to be let off in Little Rock. And somehow the steamboats overshot by about 70 miles. And so that's hard. Yeah. (laughs) The whole tribe had to backtrack like they let them off anyways and then the rest of the way they had to walk and apparently like a third of the route had been flooded so they waited about 30 miles so yeah it's just really like one mishap after another the next tribe to be removed was the Seminole they also signed over their lands but then they violently resisted and the US Army Navy and Marine Corps were all called in to try to remove them it ended up taking two wars and between 40 and 60 million dollars to remove about three thousand people. The third Seminole War was 1855 to 56. So this is more than 20 years after the removal had started. And finally, the government threw up their hands and said, we'll pay you to leave. You think of Andrew Jackson when you think of Indian removal, but a lot of the actual removal takes place after Jackson's Mm -hmm. out of office. Yeah, he signed most of the paperwork for it, but a lot of it was done after he was long gone. The Creek were removed in 1834 to 36. They actually never signed a treaty. The Chickasaw were removed in 37, and they mostly financed their own journey because they saw what happened with the Choctaw. And so their journey actually went like the most seamlessly out of any of the tribes. And then most famously, the Cherokee resisted until like 1835 to 38, and the government sent in federal troops to forcibly evict them from their land. So a couple of the different removal routes for the Cherokee and the Creek passed through Tennessee. And it should be noted that when these tribes went through towns, they weren't allowed to go through towns. They had to bypass them. So to give you some rough figures, at the start of the 1830s, there were roughly 100,000 Native Americans that inhabited the American Southeast. By the end of the 1830s, less than 10,000 remained. And the Southeast had been cleared for the most part of Native Americans, opening up about 25 million acres for white settlement. And you can look at this in the grand scheme of things as really the linchpin for the expansion of chattel slavery as well. One thought I keep having is the idea of wanting to find a place that you can call your home or that you have called your home and feeling entitled to it. Mm -hmm. The white settlers moving into those areas are thinking our culture is more advanced and better. So we should have a right to this. And since Mm -hmm. we're wanting to move into a new area, you should be okay with doing the same thing. Just go over to this other place that you don't have any history. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas the people there are obviously saying, no, we've, this is where we've always been. Mm-hmm. You can't just come and take it from us. Yeah, it's really interesting if you go and look at some primary documents that have to do with Indian removal, either speeches from Jackson or responses from different tribal leaders. They all deal with the idea of this is our ancestral homeland. And even Jackson, obviously, the little excerpt that I told you about, he's playing on that idea when he talks about how his own ancestors left. Europe and came over here because obviously they loved Europe very much, but they wanted a better life. But you're, yeah, that's an interesting thought. You're dealing with a a couple generations into a group of people who had no roots in this area. You know, like their parents or grandparents came from somewhere else. And so. Right. And I mean, even Jackson himself was not a native Tennessean. Mm -hmm. He's a recent immigrant to the state. But yeah, I think he realized very much that the strong emotions and impulses that were at play here. And he really tried to use them in his advantage um, for persuasion. The other idea I keep thinking of is the idea that one culture will have advanced to a certain point and look at another culture that hasn't and think that means that they're worse or they're lesser than we are just because they're not the same. Yes. But the idea that two cultures could be different or have advanced in different ways, but that doesn't mean that one is better or worse than the other one. And that is an interesting idea as well, especially when you look back to Jefferson and like men who were really men of the 18th century that were dealing with the idea of removing Indians because they were, they're enlightenment men. I mean, the ideas that they hold as their highest ideals have to come do with the enlightenment. And one of the big ideas from the enlightenment is that nature is perfection. And so Jefferson had this quandary because on one hand, he looked at native tribes and saw how they lived with each other in basically a state of not equality, but more equality than in Anglo-European American Mm -hmm. civilization. But they also lived in harmony with nature. And he saw this as one of the the best things about them. And that's one of the reasons that he really wanted them to integrate themselves into white American culture Mm -hmm. is because he saw that as a very positive thing. And I think in a way envied it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, this was fascinating, Grace. Thanks for doing this research. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, (laughs) this was fun. We might need to have you back again at some point. All right. That's good. No, with that, I guess, thank you for listening to 10 and 20 and tune in soon. You can follow us on Instagram at boft1864. I don't know if you have any pictures that might go along with this that we can oh, post. Oh, certainly. You yeah. do? Okay, mm-hmm. so we might post some from this episode as well, but thanks for listening. <laughs>